Hi folks, Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back as the case may be. Today, I'd like to talk about the top five books that I read in 2018. I uh, originally tweeted this list of books out and it was uh, following up on a tweet I made with the top five books that I read in 2017 and I actually made that one into a short YouTube video uh, not too long ago and so now I wanted to talk about the second list of top books that I read in 2018. So I'm just gonna work through those books uh, that I had listed and talk a little bit about why I enjoyed them so much or learned from them as much as I did in 2018. So to dive right in, the first book uh, that was on my list, and I listed them in the order that I read them, was Kianga Yamada Taylor's book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And this was a really, really um, interesting book. It helped me grasp the big picture of 20th century social history in the United States in a way that I hadn't before, especially when it came to uh, the situation of the African American community and uh, just incredibly illuminating historical work at that big picture level. And I just wanted to share with you a few of the uh, most interesting pieces that came with me out of the experience of reading this book. And I'm really hoping that I get to go back at some point and read it again or use it in some teaching or something to help you know process it even more. But right there in chapter one, uh, it's called The Culture of Racism on page 24. She gets into some interesting uh, historical reflections right off the bat. And she's talking about the end of slavery and then how uh, US society structured racism uh, following out of that, and she has this great quote, the continuing pursuit of cheap and easily manipulated labor certainly did not end with slavery. Thus, deep-seated ideas concerning the inferiority of blacks were perpetuated with fervor. So uh, just because you abolish slavery doesn't mean that there isn't still this huge demand for cheap and easily manipulable labor. And so uh, through the Jim Crow regulations and things like that, and sh uh, sharecropping and so on, you see different ways that the system tried to re-inscribe uh, on the basis of race, the supply of cheap and easily manipulated labor. And then even into the present day, when you think about um, incarceration and the prison industrial complex, uh, that's another way still today of uh, maintaining a certain level of cheap and easily manipulable labor. Um, and also in connection with this, uh, it, it brings out the kind of the material causes that go into uh, the position of African Americans in American society, uh, the economic causes, if you will. And it helps us shift our thinking away from subjective causes. So when you listen to the news and things, uh, you get the idea that breakdown in black families and the nuclear family is perhaps to blame uh, for the reason that black communities have trouble accumulating wealth or other kinds of bad behavior, whether it's drug use or gang violence or so on. All of these sorts of subjective, personal, individual behavior reasons are what keeps wealth from accumulating there. And it focuses our attention there rather than taking that step back and thinking about the material causes, the way that the system is motivated to maintain uh, access to cheap and manipulable labor and how through our nation's history, we have done that through um, structures of racism based on skin color. So um, uh, Taylor's book really helps to bring a lot of that into focus. And a related point that comes into focus uh, has to do with the role of 
elite black folks in American society. And she has chapter three entitled Black Faces in High Places. And uh, she talks through this chapter about how, oh, let's see how she puts it. Um, trying to find the right page number on here. I think it's page 79. Talking about how when you have um, a very small number of folks in the African-American community who succeed and who become wealthy, then you can lift those folks up as examples of the system working, which reinforce uh, for opportunity for everyone, the way it's ostensibly designed to work. And then that becomes another reason to not pay attention to material causes and to focus on subjective causes. So the reason that these few people are able to succeed is because they don't engage in the bad behaviors and so on, um, and not because material causes make it highly uh, unlikely that African-Americans will succeed to that level and uh, at least makes it especially challenging. So uh, she brings that out. And also the way that um, you sometimes find members of the black community and other minority communities who have succeeded, then using that success as a way to reinforce those subjective causes. So anytime uh, an elder statesman of those communities blames the behavior of the youth so to speak, and whatever behavior that is for uh, the continued issues, they are reinscribing these stereotypes and the shift from material causes to subjective causes. So Taylor is very critical of the way that black elites function to reinforce the structures of the status quo. Uh, and then another really interesting point came in chapter four, uh, and the title of that chapter is The Double Standard of Justice, and she's looking at policing and uh, those sorts of things. And maybe you've heard of the broken windows uh, policing policy. The idea of broken windows policy is to say that um, neighborhoods that have uh, small amounts of crime that are not addressed then kind of degenerate into uh, higher crime levels and more serious crime. So for instance, if you have a street and there's one broken window and that window doesn't get fixed, well, it won't be long before you have a second, a third, a fourth broken window and eventually all the windows are broken because it sends these signals that it's okay to behave in this way in that neighborhood. Now notice again, the focus is on behavior. It's on those subjective causes, not the material causes. Anyway, uh, this uh, philosophy of policing um, motivates or legitimizes really aggressive policing in poor and working class communities because you want to make sure you're maintaining these standards and maintaining appearances and making sure that even the smallest infractions are not being allowed to fester as it will uh, so that they will lead to, as it were so that it will lead to worse problems later on. And Kianga points out, Kianga Yamada Taylor points out that there's no empirical evidence for the effectiveness of this policy and that ultimately all it's doing is legitimizing that kind of aggressive policing in minority communities, which leads to the building up of um, criminal offenses for members of those communities and eventually leads to higher rates of imprisonment and so on. And um, this continues on to such an extent that Taylor describes the police in this context as stormtroopers of gentrification. And uh, what they're ultimately doing, she says, is criminalizing public displays of poverty and uh, thinking about all the socioeconomic repercussions that come from that. So um, in these different ways, Taylor's book was really enlightening, highlights a lot of dynamics that folks uh, with my background and my skin color have not had to grapple with firsthand. And so I really learned a lot from engaging with her and uh, 
looking at things from her perspective and seeing those kind of uh, historical perspectives that she was able to bring to bear. Along the same lines, my second book is by James Cone. Its title is Martin and Malcolm and America. Uh, this is a very weighty book. It's nice and heavy, lots of pages, lots of text. It's really kind of a magnum opus from James Cone. Um, I've been reading Cone for a while, not necessarily extensively, but I've been familiar with his work. I uh, tried to teach chapters of like God of the Oppressed and so on in every class that I can. And then I read Cone's Cross in the Lynching Tree, and that really motivated motivated me to go deeper and see what else he could teach me about the history of the African-American struggle in the United States. And I thought this book would be a great way to get into that for the middle of the 20th century. And I was right. I learned a great deal from this book. And the big picture thing that the book is doing is kind of lifting up Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. as examples of two different approaches uh, to the problem of racism in America from the black community. And um, you've got uh, integrationism on the one hand, and that's what Martin Luther King was interested in, bringing people of all races together and integrating them in one society. And then you've got uh, black nationalism or separatism, which is uh, uh, X's side of the argument, which says, no, we need to maintain separate communities. We need to emphasize uh, the importance of uh, our black tradition and our black communities. We need to emphasize black power uh, and so on. And uh, Cone is working to articulate not only the different blind spots of these two different approaches, but also to show that how through Martin Luther King Jr.'s career and Malcolm X's career, they kind of tend together. They kind of move toward each other slowly until, especially after Malcolm X's death, Martin Luther King Jr. actually swings quite a ways over toward uh, X's perspective. So they're complementary figures that are moving toward each other, not necessarily these diametrically opposed figures. I've been at Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, commemoration events where um, King is lifted up as somebody who's all about peace and bringing together and won't everybody just get along. And that has been used one way or the other to short circuit uh, the more critical and demanding sorts of conversations that Malcolm X uh, and his perspective would uh, necessitate that we have. And I've seen Martin Luther King lifted up as a um, example of love and Malcolm X lifted up as an example of hate. And Cohn does a really good job of explaining that this is wrong and that we need to rethink uh, how we look at these figures. Um, one of the big issues is the difference between King and X, as Cohn elaborates it, is the issue between um, the black experience for folks in the North and the black experience for folks in the South. And King is coming out of the Southern experience and X is coming out of the Northern industrial urban experience. And so in the South, you have segregation, uh, legal, legally enforced segregation. And so that's what King is focused on overcoming. And so you get the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and things like that. Whereas in the North, you don't have that kind of legally enforced segregation. But what you do have are socioeconomic structures that produce urban ghettos and keep African-Americans trapped in those urban ghettos. And that's what X is upset about. And X sees that no matter how many laws you get passed in the South to prevent that kind of legalized and forced uh, segregation, it's never going to address these problems that African-Americans in the North are having because it's not 
they're not having trouble because there are laws. They're having trouble because um, of other kinds of forces that are being brought to bear. And so one of the things that happens is after um, that legislation I just mentioned, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, um, you still, that's when you have these urban rebellions break out in places like Los Angeles and Detroit and so on. And King goes and visits those and begins to gain a wider perspective. One thing that's often forgotten about King in my experience is that um, he always had an economic angle to what he was up to and what he was working for uh, throughout his, um, his public work. And that really comes out later on in his career after he has those experiences of seeing those rebellions after especially X is assassinated and King starts thinking a lot harder about uh, what X was trying to do. So um, King comes to see that, yeah, there are these social and especially economic issues that are real problems and that this, these, this legislative gain that he made for folks in the South is not translating into productive uh, improvement for folks in the urban north and how do we crack that nut and I've always found it um, really ironic that King works for decades promoting civil rights promoting racial integration achieves the Civil Rights Act achieves the uh, Voting Rights Act is able to do all of that amid death threats and all of this kind of stuff but he achieves it and then as once he starts really pushing on the economic front, once he starts really criticizing capitalism, once he starts really criticizing the Vietnam War, that's when King is assassinated. Not earlier, then. And I've always found that just really, really pregnant with meaning. And so I think Cohn brings that out, that trajectory in King's life, especially in conversation with Malcolm. I want to read just a little bit from Cohn's book, and these are a couple quotes that he has from Malcolm X. And Cohn is right, I think, when Cohn says that X's criticism of Christianity through this racial lens is one of the more important criticisms of Christianity that have ever been made, and that uh, many aspects of the church in North America, especially the white church, still need to wrestle uh, very much with this criticism. So I'm just going to read, this is from page 166, and then I'm going to jump over to 169. So these are words from Malcolm X. Christianity is the white man's religion. The Holy Bible in the white man's hands and his interpretations of it have been the greatest single ideological weapon for enslaving millions of non-white human beings. Every country the white man has conquered with his guns, he has always paved the way and salved his conscience by carrying the Bible and interpreting it to call people heathens and pagans. Then he sends his guns, then his missionaries behind the guns to mop up. The Christian world usually is what we call the Western world. Now, what do I think? What is my image? The exploitation, colonization of the dark nations or lands was done by nations that today are known as Christian powers. Christians made slaves here in America out of 20 million black people who today are called second-class citizens. The people in Africa today are trying to get free from countries who represented themselves to the Africans as Christian nations. Wherever you find dark people or non-white people today trying to get freedom, they are trying to get freedom from the people who represent themselves as Christians. And if you go to them and ask them their picture of a Christian, they'll tell you, an exploiter, a slave master. In America, the definition would be one who promises you equal rights for a hundred years and never gives it to you.
So that's just a little example of the sort of criticisms that X was making and that Cohn wants to draw our attention to. And uh, Cohn points out that black theology is very much uh, motivated by or inspired by uh, much of King's, or not King's, much of X criticism of the Christianity of that time. So Cohn's uh, Martin and Malcolm in America is uh, the second book that I had on my list. The third book is by Reinhold Niemer, Moral Man and Immoral Society. This is a classic work. Um, Niebuhr is probably the most important Christian public intellectual in the 20th century in America. And in fact, um, Cornell West wrote a preface to this edition of uh, the book, the one that I have here. And in that book, he calls Niebuhr, quote, the greatest religious intellectual in the mid 20th in mid 20th century America. So you don't have to take my word for it, you can take Cornell West's word for it. Uh, Niebuhr is hugely important. And um, I had read Niebuhr for different things in grad school. I had a doctoral seminar on Christian ethics, so of course we read uh, both Niebuhr's for that, and I have a good grasp of Niebuhr uh, on the, uh, you know, at the meta level on the whole. Uh, but this was the first time that I'd ever read this whole book, and so it was a really good experience to get uh, more in touch with Niebuhr there. In Niebuhr, there's a St. Charles connection where I am now at Lindenwood University, the town of St. Charles, um, was one of the towns that Niebuhr's father was pastor in. And in fact, we have St. John's United Church of Christ right downtown here. It's probably about a mile from where I'm standing. And that was the church that Niebuhr's father was pastor at. And both Reinhard and H. Richard Niebuhr were children here for a number of years in St. Charles, Missouri. Um, if you look around my uh, YouTube channel, you will find a video of me and David Congdon. And in that video, uh, we go visit Niebuhr's church. Uh, and so you can get a little peek of it there. Um, a couple things that stood out to me in this book is, the first off, just in general, it, most people when they talk about Niebuhr, they think about Niebuhr, they think about the post-World War II Niebuhr, and um, post-World War II Niebuhr is very different than earlier Niebuhr, and the earlier Niebuhr was much more radical, much more uh, openly critical of capitalism, or at least he emphasized that criticism a lot more, uh, much more uh, engaged with um, Marxist thinking and socialism, uh, thinking through those different kinds of issues. So uh, this book was a different take on Niebuhr than the one that you would normally get in textbooks. And so uh, on page 15, something I wanna highlight, uh, Niebuhr's talking about coercion and uh, political coercion. And he notes that uh, political power has been made more responsible to economic power, so that now it's uh, economic rather than the political and military power that has become the significant coercive force in modern society. So for on Niebuhr's reading, this is, this is from the 1930s, on Niebuhr's read, uh, you look at society today, it's not uh, the police, it's not the military, especially if you're looking in Western societies. That's not where you find people being coerced. Where you find coercion is in the economic structures that discipline our lives. And I thought that was a really helpful perspective. We don't often think about the way that we are coerced by economics and the economic structures and the economic choices we're forced to make because they're presented to us like choices. We're making, uh, we're picking between options uh, very often, but we also have to attend to the choices that we're not allowed to make and the options that we're not allowed to pick. So for instance, um, capitalism gives me a lot of different 
breakfast cereals I can choose between, but I certainly can't make the choice to completely opt out of the capitalist economic structures uh, if I'm going to live in, as an engaged citizen in the world today. So um, Niebuhr's noting the way that those economic structures become coercive and discipline our lives and shape our imaginations in the world today, much more so than any kind of coercion exercised by political or military forces. I'm going to jump back toward the end of the book now, uh, toward page 234 and 235. And um, he's thinking here about morality and uh, how it relates to oppressors and the oppressed, especially in terms of coercion and force. And um, Niebuhr, I think, gives us some helpful uh, reorientation uh, on these matters. This is what he has to say, and I'm gonna go uh, from the bottom of 234 to the top of 235. The oppressed, whether they be the Indians in the British Empire or the Negroes in our own country or the industrial workers in every nation, have a higher moral right to challenge their oppressors than these, the oppressors, have to maintain their rule by force. The oppressed have a higher moral right to push back against the oppression than the oppressors do to maintain the status quo. And part of what Niebuhr is onto here uh, has to do with the relative values of peace and justice. And he gets to this explicitly on the next page. Equality is a higher social goal than peace. So a lot of times still today in our political discourse, we worry about peace. We, and this is often what lies behind the idea of law and order. We want people to remain calm. We want the system to, complete function, to continue functioning. We don't want it to be upset. Uh, we want peace and we want calm and we want decorum, especially uh, folks at the center of the political spectrum um, want these things and often criticize folks uh, who are pushing for change uh, for upsetting the balance, upsetting the status quo, uh, removing peace, upsetting peace. And uh, Niebuhr saying, no, peace is a secondary value. Peace would be lovely, but the first most important thing is equality, making sure that everybody has access to that equality. And, and really, that's another way of talking about justice and upholding justice in our societies. So Niebuhr helping to shift our perspectives there as well. So Niebuhr's Moral Man and Immoral Society was the third book on my list for 2018. Number four is The Ransom of the Soul by Peter Brown. Um, Peter Brown is the gold standard for intellectual, intellectual history. Um, you simply cannot get better than him. Uh, his autobiography, not autobiography, his intellectual biography of St. Augustine is, has been at the center of all Augustine bibliographies for decades and will continue to be for many decades more. Uh, and really, whenever you read Peter Brown, you are getting a master's class in how to do intellectual history. And this book is no different. In fact, I would highly recommend this book to anybody who wants to do any kind of intellectual history at any level because he, you're going to learn from him uh, not only how to tell an engaging story, but also methodologically, how to track the intersection of social forces and intellectual forces as you progress through time. Uh, he's just really good at that. And I'm, again, looking forward to reading this, just like I'm looking, again, just like I'm looking forward to reading so many of these books again. And so I just want to highlight a few things that he does in here. The first one is on page 26. And um, 
I'm sure uh, many of you are familiar with the Bible verse that says, you know, store up treasures in heaven uh, where robbers can't break in and steal them and where moths aren't going to break in and eat them and time isn't going to destroy them and all those kinds of things. In other words, don't keep stuff down here that's perishable and store up treasures in heaven instead. And Brown highlights how uh, in the ancient church, almsgiving or charitable giving to the poor directly or to the poor through the church was a way of uh, translating treasure from this earth into heaven so that all that treasure that you give to those who need it here on earth is treasure that you're laying up in heaven. And I thought that idea of, um, of uh, and you think about it like a money transfer, like um, exchanging money from one currency to another. Uh, you're doing that with your riches only between the earthly plane and the heavenly plane. Um, and he, he tracks how that gets teased out and articulated in the ancient church. And I thought that was a really interesting thought about storing up treasures in heaven. Um, a couple different chapters in this book, as you would expect from Brown, have uh, great discussions of Augustine. And um, one thing that I was interested to see, uh, middle of the 60s, I'm looking at 63 right now, um, Augustine, when he's talking about the afterlife, Brown brings out, is pretty minimalist. He doesn't want to get into a lot of details about exactly how the afterlife works, exactly what it looks like, and things like that. He's, he's happier sticking to the biblical imagery just as this kind of vague, uh, emotive imagery, and um, doesn't want to nail it down. And part of what he's up to is he doesn't want people to start calculating. Okay, if I give X, I will get this, and they're going to start doing the cost-benefit analysis and all of this kind of thing. And that's going to get in the way of charitable giving out of true Christian love. And so he's very minimalist. He doesn't want to get caught up into those conversations. And that idea about being minimalist about the afterlife in Augustine, I thought that was really interesting. And then also uh, about Augustine's preaching, especially when it comes to um, charitable giving. Um, Brown brings out that a lot of what Augustine's preaching is trying to do and his the structures for giving that he sets up is he's trying to make poor people visible in a society that has made them invisible. So wealthy Christians and wealthy non-Christians have structured their society at the time in such a way that poor people are invisible. They don't see them, they don't interact with them, they don't have to be confronted with their concerns. And so Augustine's preaching is bringing this out uh, to confront them with it, to make those people visible. And you think about our own day, the way that we have constructed our society so that richer people don't have to interact and it can be confronted by uh, poorer folks and the suffering that they uh, have to experience. And so uh, maybe we need a new Augustine uh, to help bring our attention to these issues. And then also, uh, moving on to like page 130, um, you get this idea that's developing where uh, church wealth is different than any other kind of wealth because church wealth is held in trust for, and this is a great line, quote, the socially dead and the physically dead, the poor and the souls of the departed, end quote. So the socially dead and the physically dead, all the wealth that the church possesses is held in trust for the benefit of of the socially and the physically dead. Benefit of the socially dead through uh, distribution to them, through relief efforts and all this kind of stuff, for the physically dead, uh, through maintaining their memories in the congregation, through uh, plaques, through commemorative uh, services, 
uh, through keeping them on prayer lists and all that kind of thing. But it's for the dead. And whether that's socially, the poor, or the literally dead. And then Brown is really good at tracing how over time this transitions to where the church is no longer uh, holding it for the socially and physically dead and the wealth is, that the church holds is at their disposal, but the church itself comes to be seen as the proper recipient of charitable giving, and especially monks, the mendicant orders and the, the monastic orders as sources for charitable giving. So you think about who are the poor, it becomes the church is the poor, these uh, monastic orders are the poor, we give to them, and it's not so much then about the socially uh, dead in the sense of those who are poverty-stricken in the world around us and the physically dead, but it becomes uh, well, spiritually dead isn't the right imagery, but those who are in the church uh, being those who are poor, who need to have things given to them, wealth distributed to them. So that's a real interesting and important shift that Brown highlights. So yeah, uh, great book. Brown is awesome. You should read it, The Ransom of the Soul. And that was the fourth book on my list for 2018. Fifth, uh, the last in order of reading is Daniel Peterson's book, The Eternal Covenant, Schleiermacher on God and Natural Science. So Dan is a friend of mine from uh, grad school, and I was really happy to be able to meet up with him at AAR in uh, 2018 there in Denver. And we had a breakfast where we talked Schleiermacher the whole time. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Schleiermacher is super important for the history of Protestant theology. Um, he's the father of liberal Protestant thinking, and that means uh, he's hugely important, but he's also a guy that a lot of people love to hate. And uh, Karl Barth gets some of the blame for this because he constantly kind of positions himself against Schleiermacher in important ways while keeping on the down low the ways that he's super influenced by Schleiermacher. Uh, so Barth is very much working uh, in the legacy of Schleiermacher, but he doesn't always want to show that work. He wants to kind of position himself against Schleiermacher and emphasize the differences, even while there are huge similarities. So um, lots of people love to hate on Schleiermacher. I'm not one of them. I really find Schleiermacher fascinating. Um, the really great thing about Schleiermacher is that he's an example of somebody who thought very carefully and very consistently and very thoroughly throughout all of Christian doctrine about what it would mean to articulate Christian theology under the constraints of modernity, under the constraints of the modern period of the Enlightenment. Um, and he's just unflinching in his desire to work that out. And in that, he sets a really great example for what we all need to be doing today. Uh, maybe modernity looks different for us than it did for Schleiermacher, uh, the kind of conditions under which we're working, but we all need to be working to articulate Christian theology, those of us who are Christian theologians need to be anyway, uh, under the conditions of the modern world in which we live. And Schleiermacher did that, and he's a really good example for us who are trying to do the same. But uh, this book uh, from Dan is on the relationship of theology and science, and Schleiermacher describes that relationship as an eternal covenant, and that's where the name of Dan's book comes from. Um, he thinks that there should be absolutely no contradiction between Christian faith and free, uh, independent, empirical, scientific work. And um, Peterson emphasizes uh, what this means and explicates it throughout the book and tries to make sense of it given uh, Schleiermacher's whole um, universe of theological positions. And he does a really great job. Uh, it's a really uh, convenient entry point into the whole systematic world of Schleiermacher. Uh, you don't get all the 
small doctrines and things mentioned like that, but you learn how to think the way Schleiermacher thinks as a result of reading Dan's book. And another great thing about this book is that he's especially good at uh, tracking some of Schleiermacher's influences. So for instance, he goes digging to try to figure out uh, who are the scientists and the theorists of science that Schleiermacher is interacting with. So when he says science, what does he mean? and what kind of ideas are out there. And that allows uh, him to track exactly how the arguments that Schleiermacher is making work. Um, he also looks at the influences of fig figures like Leibniz and Spinoza uh, to see how Schleiermacher builds on and departs from them. Uh, so that was really, really helpful work that Dan put into this as well. And another great thing that I really appreciated about this book is the work uh, that Dan did on um, uh, the relationship between God's freedom and necessity. Uh, and he's building on Schleiermacher here and kind of articulating the logic of Schleiermacher's work, and it's really, really valuable stuff. Um, if we look at, like, page 98, the, the, the big thing is that for God, freedom and necessity are not in opposition. Um, so he says at the bottom of page 98, God does what God does by nature and necessity. So that sounds like you're, God's not free if God's acting by nature and by necessity. But then, as he explains a little bit further down, it is only if God acts by the necessity of the divine nature that God is completely free. In other words, if there's something else constraining God's action other than God simply being the kind of God that God is, if there's something else, then God is not free. In order for God to be free, God must act only out or only on the basis of the sort of thing that God is. That means God necessarily, if God is free, God necessarily acts in a certain way, not because some kind of external necessity is being imposed upon God, but because God is simply being faithful to God's self. God is being the sort of God that God is. God cannot be otherwise and God cannot do otherwise than just to be the God and do or be the God that God is and do the things that that God does. Um, so Dan bringing together the ideas of freedom and necessity in God in a real productive uh, way, I think. And so he says on page 123, freedom and necessity are one in God. God is free when God acts simply out of the sort of thing that God is. And when God acts necessarily out of the sort of thing that God is, God is free. So uh, that was another important point that comes out in Dan's book uh, on the eternal covenant. And that was the fifth of the books that I had on my list. So there you have it. Five books, the top best five books I read in 2018. Uh, I'm going to post uh, in the description uh, the book uh, author names and titles. And in fact, Four out of these five books, I wrote something and posted it on uh, DET, the blog that I run. So I'm going to have the links to those in there as well. And uh, you can explore that uh, to whatever extent you'd like to explore it. So I hope that if you haven't read any of these books yet, or if there's one of them they haven't read, that you go out and take a look at it. It'll definitely be worth, worth your time. I highly recommend them all. And so uh, happy reading. Until next time.